Let's listen now for God's word from Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son, or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, we are talking about Sabbath. We are talking about rest. We are talking about the opportunity to have a break. I just want to say at the top, as, as I've been a pastor now for this church for seven years and been in ministry for longer than that, this community, the East Side, does more than any other community I've ever served to actively scoff and belittle the idea of rest. I'm not saying all of you do that. I'm saying our culture broadly finds the idea of rest laughable. They do. So even though those of us who may have grown up in the church or grew up with, you know, the idea of Sundays are a day that we devote to the Lord and all those, like, good things, all of us, simply by existing in this part of the world, are confronted with a culture that finds rest completely antithetical to all of our ideals. How can you advance your career if you're taking a day off a week? How can you take a break when there's all this important stuff to be done? How can you say no to things when there's all these opportunities for your kids and for your grandkids? Make no mistake, our culture actively scoffs at the idea of rest. So there honestly is far fewer things that I can think of that are as countercultural as the idea of gathering for worship, of setting apart time in your weekly rhythm to just take a break, to not be productive. Some of you know I had the opportunity to take a sabbatical this past summer, which was a gift. It was an incredible gift to my family. But one of the things that I didn't know I needed to learn and that God really impressed upon me is that I needed a new relationship with time, with how I understand and experience time. And I think a lot of us are like this. Let me give you an example. I was talking with a friend of mine, another dad. We were waiting to pick up our kids from school. And this guy's a good guy. He's not a believer, but he's a good father. He's present with his kids. We've done sports with our two boys together. Like, he's someone that I feel like I know fairly well. And we were talking about our weekends. It was a Friday, so we're standing up at school. We're just chatting before our kids get out of class, and we take them home. And so I said, hey, what do you have planned for your weekend? And he said, oh, man. So Saturday, we have a soccer game at 8 a.m., all the way over in Mercer Island. And then my son's got a baseball game all the way back here at Big Fin Hill at 10. And then we have a birthday party at 1 and then my in-laws are coming over, and then my son has batting practice at 7 that night, and then he's got to be at his game the next morning in Bellevue at 9. And I just looked at him, and I thought, I'm tired just hearing you say that. I am. And I said, gosh, man, that's a lot. And he looked at me, and he said, yeah, remember when weekends used to be fun? Remember when weekends used to be fun? That's a tragic statement, isn't it? That's kind of heartbreaking. And I thank God for this, and I'm not going to, I didn't say this exactly like this, but the sentiment I expressed to him after he shared that was, how's that going for you? Do you like that? How's that going for you? And he said, what, what else are we supposed to do? That is our world. That is scoffing at the idea of rest. That is pushing yourself to the utter limits of exhaustion. I don't know if you saw this week, but there's some job openings at Twitter. They want you to work 84 hours a week. 
at Twitter. And some of us will hear that and go, if it advances my career and provides for my family, yeah, I'll do it. I don't know, guys. I, I, I don't think human beings are made to work 84 hours a week. There was a study done several years ago that said your productivity and the amount of time you spend at work have an inverse correlation. In other words, if you push past this 40-hour-a-week rough limit, your productivity starts to degrade rapidly. At 42 hours a week, your productivity degrades by about 5%. At 45 hours a week, your productivity degrades by 25%. At 50 hours a week, your productivity degrades 60%. You actively work against your own productivity by pushing past the 50-hour-a-week mark. And there are people sitting here in this room, and there are people watching us online who hear me say that and go, I'm fine. That doesn't apply to me. I can do 50, no problem. I'll tell you what I look like after I do a 50-hour-a-week. I look like a wreck. I'm tired, I'm cranky, I'm not a good spouse, I'm not a good father. Some of you have lived this. You know what I'm talking about. But our world fights this, resists this, and some of it is we have such a fractured relationship with time. Time must be purposeful or else it's no good to us. Uh, this is a quote from Marilyn Robinson, a wonderful author. She says this, The spirit of our time is one of joyless urgency. <laughs> Isn't that a great phrase and a terrible phrase? Joyless urgency urgency. My friend that I was talking to before we picked up our kids from school, joyless urgency to get to the next thing, to make sure your kids are on time here, and this and that and the other. Where is there joyless urgency in your life? Even if you're a devoted follower of Jesus, this can happen to you, because these are the waters we swim in. One of the books that I read on sabbatical that I've talked about before, you might be getting sick of me talking about it, but I'm not sick of talking about it, so there is called 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. I think everybody should read this. 4,000 Weeks is the average lifespan of a human being. And his premise in this book is, you've only got 4,000 weeks to live, so do it. Do it well. Do it through your values. Do it in ways that honor others. He says this. <clears throat> this is part of our problem. Our days are spent trying to get through tasks. How many of you use the phrase, I gotta get through this task this week? I caught myself one time saying, I gotta get through Easter. I gotta get through Christmas. Ooh, that was painful when I said that. Our days are spent trying to get through tasks in order to get them, say it with me, out of the way. I got to get it out of the way with the result that we live mentally in the future, waiting for when we finally get around to what really matters and worrying in the meantime that we don't measure up, that we might lack the drive or stamina to keep pace with the speed at which the people and organizations around us appear to be running. My kid's going to get left behind if he doesn't do select soccer. I'm going to miss this opportunity for my career if I don't say yes to another Saturday in the office. I grew up in a family of lawyers. How many of you know what billable hours are? Billable hours will tear you apart because all you do is look at your time in these tiny little fragments, 15 minutes, seven and a half minutes, even smaller and smaller and smaller, and all you can think of is, am I charging this to the right client? Did I type in the right code over here? That's the way those systems work, and no wonder our relationship with time is so fractured. This is not how it has to be. The church knows that this is not how it has to be. Pastors are deeply guilty of not living this out, trust me. We'll go into that in a minute. But we have a way that is better, different, foundational, in which we practice Sabbath as a community, 
So congratulations, you're taking the good first step, you're here, all of you online, well done. But there's more. And we need to look at the foundation of this, and then next week we'll look at how Jesus practices this. So this is our outline for today. We need to define the Sabbath because this is how God wired us. This is how he built time, was to be experienced not as push, 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 but it's this loose kind of six-to-one ratio of like, yeah, I'll work hard for six days, but man, I need that day to rest. Oh, I really need it. We're going to define what the Sabbath means. We're going to talk about how the Sabbath was a corrective to the people of Israel during their wanderings in the wilderness. We're going to talk about better Sabbath, how to get better at it, and then a few next steps. So let's begin with defining our terms. Y'all know this. This is how I work. If we're going to talk about something, let's define what we mean by it. Our friends at Webster's Dictionary define Sabbath as the seventh day of the week observed as a day of worship for Jews and some Christians. Isn't that funny? The Jews are batting a thousand. Some of you Christians, you got it, but not everybody. Like you over there. No, 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 not you. The seventh day of the week observed as a day of worship for Jews and some Christians. This is the understanding of Sabbath that you might have grown up with if you grew up with your parents taking you to church or your grandparents or your neighbors or whoever. If you didn't grow up in the church, you've had to kind of come to your own understanding of what it means to practice Sabbath, to devote a day or part of a day to worship. And again, congrats, you're here. You're doing it. But think about who's not here. Think about 84 hours a week at Twitter. There's no room for things like this in that, in that makeup. And maybe there's very faithful people there who are making it work. I don't know. But devoting a day to worship, to orienting your life around the person and work of Jesus Christ, that's pretty remarkable. Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar and a poet and so many other things, wrote a wonderful book called Sabbath is Resistance. He says this, Sabbath is an invitation to spend one day per week in the awareness and practice of the claim that we are situated on the receiving end of the gifts of God. What a great turn of a phrase. We are on the receiving end of the gifts of God. What does that mean? Psalm 145 says, you open your hand and satisfy the desires of all things. It's one of my favorite lines in all of scripture. I picture like a, a fountain, like a waterfall of just grace and blessing sort of flowing from the hand of the Father into my life and into your life. The air that we breathe, the fact that we can move our bodies, the minds that God has given to us, all that he has provided for us. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of all things. We are on the receiving end of that gift. In the New Testament, in Romans 8, 32, the Apostle Paul wrote, God who did not spare his own son, won't he graciously give us all things? And I love Paul's sort of backwards rhetoric there because he says, if this gift, if the gift of Jesus Christ, if the gift of the cross is the greatest gift God could ever give, and it is, everything else down the ladder, the minor gifts, whatever you had for breakfast, the cup of coffee you enjoyed, a World Series championship, those are smaller things compared to the goodness and grace of God. And the evidence that God will provide for you and for me is he gave us the biggest thing, the biggest thing, his son. He won't hold back from the people that he has given the biggest thing. I love that. We are on the receiving end of these gifts. If you follow Jesus Christ, you know you are on the receiving end of the greatest gift that you could never, ever earn or deserve, ever. And it is God's gift of salvation, of rescue, and of real life now. 
Sabbath is the appropriate response to the abundant life God has given you. And you may not think your life is that abundant. You're trying to get your checking account figured out, and you got, you know, student loan debt you're trying to figure out, all these kinds of things. I get it. You still have an abundant life. And God has given it to you. What is your response? Is it to get busier? Or is it to offer part of your time back to him in worship and gratitude? Now, our culture in different ways and in different seasons has affirmed this. There were times in history when grocery stores were not open on Sundays. You might remember this. Maybe you grew up in a part of the world like I did growing up in Houston where events just didn't happen on Sundays. I remember when I moved to the Northwest, I was stunned to find out that sports and like races, like I like to run races, like 10Ks, half marathons, they happen on Sunday mornings. And that doesn't happen in the part of the world that I grew up in. There's pluses and minuses to that, but culture has sometimes agreed with this idea that the Sabbath is important. Can we just agree that that day is done? There is no longer affirmation of that value. There are very few places you can find that are closed on Sundays. I can think of one, the teriyaki place up the street. They're closed on Sundays. Chick-fil-A is closed on Sundays. Thank you. Two places I love so much. Man. Now, what does this mean? When we look at it through the lens of the scriptures, what does this mean? Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. This is where we're going to talk about Sabbath as a corrective. And that's a little bit of a generous phrase there. Sabbath isn't just meant to correct us, slap us on the wrist when we start to make a wrong turn, but it was certainly a corrective to the people of Israel. Exodus chapter 20. Let's set the context for just a minute. Exodus is the story of God moving his people from captivity and slavery in Egypt into freedom. It is a huge transition that God uses broken and flawed people to eventuate, like Moses, like others who help lead the people into freedom. So right before today's passage, God has led the people of Israel on a miraculous journey where they are no longer under the yoke of slavery in Egypt. Now, I grabbed this image from a movie I haven't seen in years. This is from The Prince of Egypt. You remember that animated movie about 30 years ago? This scene blew my mind in that movie. Down here, the people of Israel, carrying their torches, walking along dry land. And this aquarium-looking thing behind them, that's the wall of water on the Red Sea. Isn't that beautiful? There's just this long shot in the film of these little dots, these little lights walking into freedom, and behind them is this beast, this whale, the shark, who knows, but they're, they're in awe of God as they leave behind slavery and walk into freedom. That's the point that I'm trying to make. But now that they're into this life of freedom, it is not smooth sailing. Their challenges are far from over. They have freedom, but do they know how to use it wisely and well? This is where God steps in and provides clarity because human beings were never meant to just be given unfettered freedom. That's not good for us. It's not actually free to not have any kind of constraints around you whatsoever. That's called chaos. That's called anarchy. There's a modern fallacy that freedom means no restrictions whatsoever. Mm -mm. That's not freedom. You will always bump up against someone or something else in your pursuit of so-called freedom, and you might be very offensive to them in your pursuit of freedom, and it's not good for anyone to run around without boundaries. Ask any parent in the room, kids need boundaries. Do they not? 
Kids need boundaries. They need to know, what do I roll up to and what should my expectations be here? And am I safe? Can I have this conversation? So freedom, yes. But the modern idea of freedom as completely unfettered and unadulterated, no, that's a fallacy. Much of Exodus focuses on how God is creating a covenant reality for his people to live into. So he makes these promises, this covenant agreement with the Israelites at Mount Sinai, and that's where we get back into today's passage in Exodus 20, verse 8. This is one of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were not given as punishment. They were given as a key to freedom. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male or female slave, the people that you have control over, they don't work on the Sabbath day either. You use your freedom for their benefit. Your livestock, the alien residents in your towns, for in six days, this is why we do this. The Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. I want to keep this final slide up here for just a minute. The Lord made heaven and earth. By the way, what have you done this week? Did you make heaven and earth? Okay. He made everything that is in them, and then what was his response? Did he do a victory lap? Did he have a parade? Did he build a monument to himself? No. He rested. He rested. Yahweh, the holy God, rested. Does God need to rest? He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. Does he really need to put his feet up? That's not the point. The point is, what does God model for us? What does his behavior tell us? This is expanded upon a little bit later in Exodus. It is a sign forever between me and the Israelites that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and he was refreshed. Church, when's the last time you felt refreshed? When's the last time your soul felt like you had something put back into you. So much of our lives, we're being squeezed out. And this is a good thing. Our work, our parenting, grandparenting, building a home, making art, poured out. But then it, it runs dry, doesn't it? There's only so much we can give. There's only so many hours you can work. When's the last time you had something put back in that you had given out? When's the last time you were refreshed and allowed to drink deeply of the abundant life that God has for you? God tells us to. But here's the thing. Not only does our culture tell us that it's ridiculous to rest, it's ridiculous to absorb and to be restored, we tell ourselves this. So I want to do a little emotional experiment with you guys. I'm going to put up three statements up here. I'm going to have you say them with me. They're very short. And I want you to not think about the statement. I want you to ask yourself, what's happening in my heart? What do I feel? I'll read these, and then we can read them together. I am a human being. I cannot go on forever. I need to rest. Remember, you're watching what's happening in your heart. So say these with me. I am a human being. I cannot go on forever. I need to rest. What's happening in your heart? Write it down. Think about it.
How do you feel? Is there a part of your spirit that says, oh man, (laughs) yeah, I need to rest. I haven't uh, been able to run lately because I've had a knee injury, but when my PT told me, you need to rest, that's the way you're going to recover from this, you need to rest, there was a part of my spirit that just said, yep, that feels right, and I love running, but I need to rest. Was there a part of your spirit that just said, yep, I need it? Or did the hair stand up on the back of your neck? Did you get mad? Did you go, how dare you? How dare you make me read such insulting things? What did it do to your heart? Pay attention to how your heart feels when you're confronted with the idea of rest. God's people need these rhythms as rest as much as anyone. And right after the Exodus passage that we read, the people of Israel start to do something that they've never done before. They follow the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. Remember this, this miracle that God gives to show them where to go. And they build a tabernacle. Even though they are on the move, they are living out of tents, they are making do with what they can in the wilderness, they find a way to prioritize worship and being in the holy presence of God. I looked at some pictures of it this morning. That What scholars can kind of recreate as what the tabernacle looked like, it's basically just a big old tent, like what you might park an extra car under. It wasn't anything fancy, but it was a set-apart place in their dwelling, in their camp, where they were at that time, and they were always carrying the covenant with them. They were physically reminded of it, visually reminded of it all the time. Maybe you live up here on Thin Hill and you drive by our church. Maybe you're reminded of your need for worship and rest visually. Most of us don't live up here on Thin Hill. We're pretty spread out. What do you drive by that reminds you to rest? Probably not a lot of things. But the Israelites had that reminder, and I think we need it too. Now, why do I say this? Another quote that I think is super helpful. This is where we talk about better Sabbath. This is Mary Oliver, a poet. Attention is the beginning of devotion. Attention is the beginning of devotion. What you give your attention to, you are devoted to. When your child is born into the world and you hold that life in your arms the first time, you know where your attention is going. And you know you'll be devoted to that kid. When you launch a business, when you build your home, when you complete a project, you know you've given so much attention to this and and you're, you're devoted to it and now it's complete and it just feels really good. We live in an attention-deprived society. Everything's vying for our attention. But when we give our attention to God, it deepens, it enriches, it fills us with devotion. Sabbath is about reminding ourselves that we need to give our attention in the direction of the cross, in the direction of the one who made us. And there's nothing around us that will remind us of that, not even driving by the church. So I want to give just a couple of practical ideas about how I try to get at this. And again, some of this may work for you, some of this may not. But the steps or just the concepts that I have found to be helpful in my own pursuit of Sabbath, identify resistance, start small, set up boundaries, and apply grace. So identifying resistance, we just did that. That little emotional exercise I had us do where we looked at those different statements. Where did you resist that? Where did you kind of go, okay, maybe I could have an open hand about this, but no, 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 don't go there, don't go there. 
Don't tell me about that. We've talked about this before, but one of our biggest challenges on the east side is we like to talk about how busy we are, and what we're doing is bragging about how important we think we are. I'm guilty of it too, guys, but busyness is thinly veiled self-importance. So is talking about how tired we are. I, I was seeing a counselor for a while. This guy was great. And he said, before you come and see me, just know that the first question I'm going to ask you is, how are you? And you can't answer with the word tired. And it worked, because every time I would go and see him, I would think of a different word to use, because I knew I couldn't just trot that pony out again. What if this week we all said, we're not going to say we're tired? Even if you are. Don't deny that reality. Like, go take a nap. Go do your thing. But don't use it as a marker of how important you think you are. What if we stop doing that? What if we stop using busyness as an excuse for engaging with community? Identify those areas of resistance. Where are you most resistant to the idea of rest? What distracts you from your need to rest? The glowing rectangle that we all have in our pockets is not designed to help you rest. One of my Sabbath practices is my glowing rectangle, my phone, it goes in a drawer in our house and I try to leave it there as much as I can. I don't check email on my Sabbath because that's a distraction. I've actually been in times and places in my own life in ministry where email, all it did was it made my heart rate go up. I could just feel my heart rate spike and I thought, no, 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 I need to put that away. Identify those places of resistance. If you resist that idea of not having your phone around you, there's a couple people in this room that I could have you talk to who have done this. They just turn their phones off for a whole day. That's their Sabbath. It's wonderful. It's life-giving. So identify those areas of resistance in your own heart. Start small is always an important encouragement around Sabbath. Maybe for you, it's just not possible right now to take an entire day off. That's fine. Start small. I mean, this is any of those great books about building habits. You don't just start your habit tomorrow. You start building small. So if you can't take a whole day off, start by taking an hour off in the morning. One of my rules every day is I don't open up my phone, I don't look at email, I don't do anything work-related until after I've had my coffee and my time with the Lord. I just, I won't do it. And I know so many people, the first thing they do is they open up their email to see what happened while they were asleep. Maybe you need to break that pattern. So start small. Stop doing that. (laughs) Take an hour off in the morning. Uh, I've been through different seasons where just ministry was really fatiguing to me, and so I would take Wednesday mornings, and I would just sleep a little bit later, Jill and I would go on a walk or get a coffee or go on a run together when I was able to run. And I would kind of ease into work a little bit later that day. I needed that. I needed that break kind of midway through my week. You can do that too. One of the beautiful things about the last couple years and these conversations around work and work from home and all these sort of things, you do have more flexibility than you might give yourself permission for in your work. Some of us don't. If you're a teacher, if you're a physician, when you're at work, you're at work. I get it. But what would it look like to take an hour off, a morning off, to say, hey guys, you know what? I know it's uh, Tuesday at 3 o'clock. I'm out of here. Bye-bye. And you just give yourself that permission. Most of you who work for large companies, your companies have now given you things like personal days, mental health days. Take it. Take it. My dad used to say this. Don't leave money on the table. If your company has given you that break, take it. If your supervisor is coming to you and saying, you've maxed out your vacation time, that's not a compliment. Take your vacation. Get out of there. 
I set a goal when we started at Bethany that I would use up every one of my vacation days every year that we've been here. I've gotten close almost every year. And I don't say that to brag. I just say that as that was a goal for my family. Take the time that is given to you. Apply grace because you're going to mess this up just like I do. My Sabbath day is Fridays, and some Fridays, you know, it just didn't happen. I didn't get the rest. Something came up with a kid, or we had a crisis at work, or whatever. It's going to happen. Apply grace as you try to figure out what Sabbath needs to look like for you. For me, it's Fridays because, hey, I don't know if you realize this. This is work for me. This is not my Sabbath day. I am happy to provide for your Sabbath day, and our team is happy to provide for you, but this is not my Sabbath day. Funny enough, one of the ways that I practice Sabbath, actually, and get restored is by worshiping with y'all, truly. Like, to sing and to be in this space and to receive from the communion table, it is good for my soul. If that is all I was doing to care for my soul, I would be a shell of a man. But it is meaningful to me to be here with you all, and I'm honored to be able to. My Sabbath day is Fridays. You're not going to hear from me on Fridays. I'm not going to call you. I'm not going to text you. I'm not going to email you. You have my permission if you do hear from me on a Friday to say, hey, hold on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You said this was your Sabbath, pal. Like, call me on the carpet about it. I know pastors who've taken Mondays as Sabbath or Thursdays as Sabbath. Figure out what works for your family. Figure out a way to take that break, even if it's just a morning. Remember, the world around us, it's interested in this. Just as much of this as can be humanly taken from you. Our world is not going to give you this. It's not. And you can only do so much of this again and again and again without this. You have limits. Will you embrace them? Will you order your time around the time that God gave to his people? Will you set those boundaries? Will you keep those parameters? As we turn our attention now to continuing in worship, I'm going to invite Suzanne to come back to the piano. And we're actually going to practice this together. It would be ridiculous to do a sermon about Sabbath and not give us a chance to actually rest. So Suzanne's going to play, and you're going to have the opportunity right where you are to just rest. Just for a few minutes. I will keep an eye on our time, but you get just a few minutes to be quiet, to let the Lord speak to you, to listen to the beauty of, of music in this wonderful space. You can look at the stained glass. You can think about your day or your week. Don't look at your phone. But we're going to return to God just three minutes of our time. And I'm going to pray for us before we do. Let's pray. God, thank you that you desire for us to be filled with your spirit. And as we get ready for these moments of rest, we just want to offer them back to you first. You are the Lord of the Sabbath. Thank you for giving us this call to order our time around who you are. So use these times, this time of reflection, and just to be in your presence, to minister to us. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.